So Father, we come now to your word and we submit ourselves under its authority in our lives, Father, because we recognize that these words are your words. And so will you use it today, Father, to show us where we have fallen short. Father, reveal to us where we have not measured up to the standard of righteousness that you require. And yet, Father, show us Jesus who perfectly met every righteous requirement of the law, who did for us what we could never do for ourselves. Let the reality of our sinfulness only be overwhelmed by a vision of your holiness. And even, fathers, we feel conviction for the weight of the ways that we have fallen short. We thank you for the blood of Jesus. We thank you that though our sins were as scarlet, you have washed us white as snow. So, Father, show us your goodness once again through your word today. Father, speak to us today a word that will edify your church, glorify your name. Father, sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth, and we submit to it now. We ask all these things in the precious name of your son, Jesus Christ, and everyone said, amen, amen. You can go ahead and find your seats, and um, as you're seated this morning, I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bible. Matthew chapter 5 is where we'll be again together this morning, looking together at verses 27 through 30. If you're our guest, if you're here with us for the first time, uh, my name's Taylor. I serve here at Cross as lead pastor, and we're honored to have you worshiping with us today. And back at the beginning of the summer, our church family started studying the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Um, we started this together back in June, and we expect this uh, to last until the end of the year. So this morning, we are just picking up where we left off last week. Now, uh, I just want to give a little bit of a disclaimer up front, particularly for parents in the room. Those of you who have been maybe looking ahead for the next couple of weeks, we, we're going to get into some pretty weighty matters today um, and next week. If you look at the subheadings in your Bible, um, today we'll be looking at what Jesus has to say about lust. Um, and in a couple of weeks, um, when we're back in here after we meet at the Tabby Place next week, um, we'll be right back in Matthew 5 looking at what God's Word tells us about divorce. Um, these are very sensitive issues, that these are very challenging issues for us to be able to navigate together. Um, and particularly today, as we look at lust and God's design for sex and for sexuality and for marriage, we'll see that over the next couple of weeks um, together. Parents, my commitment to you is um, we're just simply going to look at what God's Word has to say about these things. I'm not trying to be crass, not trying to be inappropriate, not trying to be rude. Um, we are just submitting ourselves to the full authority of the Word of God. Um, these are, are tense things to be able to navigate through together as a church family, yet they are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, and we bring ourselves under the teaching of our Savior today. So uh, Matthew 5, again, looking at verses 27 through 30 together this morning. In 1519, when Hernando Cortez arrived with 600 men uh, to the New World, the shores of Veracruz, to begin his conquest, he was determined to pursue victory at all costs. So when he and his men arrived on shore, he gave a very simple but startling order because he wanted to eliminate any potential that they might surrender or retreat from their conquest. And so history buffs who were in the room, when Cortez and his men arrived, what was the famous command that he gave to his men? It was to burn the ships. Cortez gave the direction to his men to burn the ships. 
He was so set on conquest, he was so set on conquering that he wanted to eliminate even the possibility of turning back and going the other way. And in his mind, he would get the best of his men if he eliminated their potential for retreat. So he gave the order to burn the ships. In verse 27 of Matthew 5, Jesus moves from the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, which we saw last week, to the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And just like the sixth commandment, the Pharisees believed they were fulfilling the righteous requirements of the seventh commandment simply because they didn't commit the physical act of adultery. But in the same way that Jesus showed them that hateful hearts are just as guilty as murderous hands, we'll see in this passage today, Jesus showing us that lustful hearts are just as guilty as adulterous bodies. What we'll see in verses 27 through 30 is Jesus calling us to walk in his righteousness specifically by taking extraordinary measures to avoid sexual sin and its eternal consequences in our lives. So here's what we've seen over the last few weeks. What Christ demands is a heart that is righteous from the inside out. Christ demands a heart righteousness that manifests in external obedience. It's not enough for us just to look the part, to look pure, to look clean, to look holy. On the outside, Jesus Christ demands an inside-out righteousness that manifests itself in external deeds of righteousness as we walk in obedience to the word of God. And one of the reasons why many of us continue to fall prey to the temptations in our lives is because we have provided our sin with an out. And instead of throwing our, our sin, a 50-pound boulder, tiring, uh, tying our sin to a weight and letting it drown at the bottom of the sea, many of us can be guilty of throwing our sin, a life preserver, and keeping it alive. But as we're going to see Jesus show us today from Matthew 5, when it comes to facing sexual sin in our lives, the order from our Savior is simple. Church, we're called to burn the ships. We're called to eliminate any potential path that might lead us away from the path of righteousness, that we're called to walk out of obedience to Jesus Christ. So Matthew 5, let's read together again, verses 27 through 30. Jesus, excuse me, verses 27, 28. You have heard that it was said. So here's Jesus reintroducing the formula that we saw last week. You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So first, Jesus shows us from this passage that we cannot minimize the significance of sexual sin in our hearts. We cannot minimize the significance of sexual sin in our hearts. And again, next week, we're going to be taking a short break from the Sermon on the Mount as we meet at this happy place. Uh, but today and two weeks from today, we're going to see very closely what Jesus taught us about sex and marriage. Uh, recap from two weeks ago, we saw from the words of Jesus that Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to do what, church? to fulfill the law. Jesus literally came to fill the law up, to bring it to its intended completion and purpose, which means Jesus was not in disagreement with one word of the Old Testament, meaning that Jesus affirmed what was taught in the Old Testament concerning sex and marriage. Scripture shows us that, that sex is a good gift that has been given to us by a generous God, but it's supposed to be confined to a man and a woman, a husband and a wife who have covenanted together in marriage together. And, and this is important for us to lay this foundation because even among professing Christians today, there are many progressive writers and teachers who are guilty of making this wildly inaccurate claim that Jesus had nothing to say about these things. 
as if Jesus was silent on matters of marriage and sexuality, but we see easily from Scripture that this is not at all the case, and that's a completely misguided claim. Matthew 19, the Pharisees get into a debate with Jesus. They come to him, and they tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This passage was Jesus fully affirming what God had initiated in and ordained at the dawn of creation before sin entered into the world. This is Jesus affirming the definition of marriage as as being a covenant, as being a union between a man and a woman together. Earlier, Matthew chapter 15, Jesus teaches about the nature of sexual sin. He said, for out of the heart come evil thoughts. Remember, the Pharisees always wanted to debate Jesus and his disciples about their external purifying and cleansing rituals, but Jesus was trying to show them true purity, true cleansing of your sin. It doesn't come through washing your hands. It comes from having a purified heart. He goes on to say, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. We need to be clear, those gathered would have understood adultery and sexual immorality to include any sort of sexual activity outside of covenant marriage between a man and a woman. So it's really very simple for us today. Jesus believed that marriage was a covenant between a man and a woman, and Jesus believed that sexual activity was only to be enjoyed within the covenant of marriage. So that would mean for for us today that scripture would prohibit even a heterosexual couple engaging in sexual activity outside of marriage. This would prohibit men or women uh, reading or viewing pornographic material. This would prohibit becoming more popular today. Open marriages where husbands and wives give one another to explore other sexual relationships and it would prohibit any sexual activity between men or be between women. The biblical parameters for sex and marriage are not unclear. We need to understand this. I just want to say that one more time. The biblical parameters for sex and marriage, church, that they are not unclear. And we need to hear that today because there are so many even influencing from within the church, building large platforms, making it seem as if Jesus has been completely silent on these matters, and the reality is he's not. As a matter of fact, I think we could take it a step further in this. If we were to say that these things were not clear from Scripture, then nothing is clear from Scripture. That this is, in fact, one of the clearest things for us, easiest things for us to understand as we read the Word of God together. And we cannot make the mistake of believing that Jesus has been silent on these things. So it's simple for us as a church. We believe what we believe about sex and marriage because we believe what Jesus believed about sex and marriage. And it really is as simple as that. And so what Jesus shows us in Matthew 5 is that sexual purity doesn't begin externally with our bodies. It begins internally in our hearts. The Pharisees had avoided the physical act of adultery, but Jesus shows them that keeping their bodies physically pure was was meaningless if if they still had a filthy imagination. He says, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You know, one of the biggest challenges of sexual temptation is that you can't always control what you see. You can't always control what you, what you feel in a given moment. You can't control what comes in front of your eyes. And so while you can't always control what you see, what we do control is what we do with what we see. 
But this is especially true for us, I think, just uh, this sexually charged culture that we live in today. I mean, you can hardly turn on your TV for two minutes or scroll your phone for two minutes without being bombarded with some sort of suggestive material. But while we can't control what we see, we can control what we do when we see it. And here, Jesus differentiates between looking and lusting. Can't always control what we see, but we can control what we do with what we see. To look on someone with lustful intent, that this is to go beyond simply seeing them to actually desiring them in a sexual way. Lustful intent sees, and then it fantasizes about the opportunity to both see more and to do more. Instead of turning the eyes the other way, instead of bringing our desires under the authority and the lordship of Jesus Christ, lustful intent surrenders the desires of the heart to the fantasies of the mind. And this is the look that kills. Jesus says this is the look that kills. Adultery is first desired in the heart and imagined in the mind before it's carried out by the body. So what Jesus was saying in verses 27 and 28 is maybe you've not physically committed the act of adultery, but you've wanted to. You've desired these things in your heart and it begins with sinful desire. In the eyes of God, this fails to meet the righteous standard and demand of the law. And it's a standard church that we have all of us failed to meet. And part of the reason why pornography continues to be so pervasive in our culture is, is because we have made it to be a lot less than it actually is. Uh, Ray Ortland has written a very powerful little book called The Death of Porn. And in this book, he speaks to the ways we've minimized uh, pornography, the effects of pornography in our culture. And there's this section of the book where he reflects on these words of Jesus from verses 27 through 28. This will be on the screen. And this is the importance of not minimizing what it is that's actually taking place. He says, no man is helped by using nicey-nice hypocritical words like I slipped up today or passive words like this happened to me. Every man who wants his freedom back must first start using true words to match what porn is. If you're watching it, you're doing it. So how's this for next level honesty? If you look at porn, be honest enough to say to God, today I entertain myself with sexual exploitation or today I joined in the abuse of a woman. Or today, I watched her degradation for my pleasure. Or today, I took a stand against you and with Satan. Because according to Jesus, that, that's what's really going on. And Ortland then goes on to reflect further on the words of Jesus from Matthew 5. He asked, what is Jesus saying? What Jesus is saying is the look is morally equivalent to the act. Yes, outward acts matter too in the eyes of the law. But to Jesus, the intent within is equally serious. And you'll start getting free when you start getting honest. Until you and I are willing to get totally honest before God about the depth of the sinful desires of our hearts, but until you and I are, are willing to get totally honest before God about the severity of our actions and of our sin, our flesh will remain trapped in the prison of sinful lust. It's not enough to avoid the action. We have to get to the root cause of the action, which means getting honest about the desire of our hearts because sinful action starts with sinful desire. A house we were living in several years ago, we had this big living fence in our backyard and that's like the wire, chicken wire looking type fence if you don't know what that is. And so um, that's lining the, the back of our yard. It backed up against the woods. And, and so I was out working in the yard one morning and I realized there was a lot of vine that was starting to grow up the, the living fence. And I, I didn't want to have all that, but I was kind of in a rush that day, didn't have a lot of time. So what I did is I just went across the bottom of the fence and I cut off the vine where it was growing out of the ground and then just untangled it from these sections of fence that it was wrapping up and, and just thought, hey, I'll, I'll get to this later. 
And, but then, you know, it didn't come back for a couple days. I was like, well, maybe I actually eliminated it. Well, then we had a, a really heavy rain and I went back there about a week later and the vine had grown up the fence about twice as high and about twice as thick as it had the first time around. Um, so, so because I didn't get to the root of the issue, I had to keep fighting it again and again and again. So finally what I had to do is go outside one day, I took a shovel and I had to dig at different points, three, four feet in the ground to get to the root cause of the issue to dig up the roots that were springing these vines that were then crawling up my fence. And, and this is what Jesus is saying about sexual sin is, is it's not enough to just manage it on the outside. You've got to get to the root cause of this and the root cause of it is the desire of our hearts. Church, understand, we're never called to manage our sin, we're called to murder our sin. We're called to put it to death. We're not called to just pull up the anchor. We're called to burn the ship and be done with it entirely. It begins with the desires of our hearts. James 1 says it like this. James writes, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So it starts with the desires of our hearts. It starts with the desires of our hearts. And God's word is abundantly clear on this. Any sexual desire that we experience, that we feel for another person that's outside the boundaries of a desire, a husband and a wife feel for one another inside the covenant of their marriage, any sort of desire falls outside of the boundaries of the righteousness that Christ requires. It starts with the desire. We don't, we, don't always, we don't always control what we see. We don't always control what we feel in the moment. But what we can do is we can control what we do with those feelings, whether we act on these things or not, whether or not we'll bring them under the lordship and the authority of Jesus Christ. All of our broken sexual desires have to be brought totally under the authority and the lordship of Jesus. It's only by putting to death our flesh by the power of his spirit, walking in the power of his Holy Spirit, that we'll ever be able to overcome these things. That this isn't something that we can do on our own. Desire leads to sin and sin leads to death. So we don't minimize the significance of sexual sin in our hearts. Jesus goes on, verses 29 and 30, to say, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So second, Jesus shows us that we must eliminate the influence of sexual sin from our lives. We're not gonna minimize it when it's in our hearts and we have to eliminate its influence from our lives. In Jewish culture, the right eye and the right hand represented a person's best vision and best ability. And this phrase causes you to sin. It comes from the Greek term skandalizo. It's from uh, the same word that we get our term scandal. It was a word that was often used to describe the stick or the rod that would spring an animal trap whenever it was tripped. And so what Jesus is getting across to his audience that we should be willing to give up anything. It's the point he was trying to make. That there's nothing that you should be unwilling to give up we should be willing to give up anything if it's leading us further into temptation, if it's leading us deeper into sexual sin. There's nothing in our lives, no matter how dear it seems to us, no matter how essential or necessary it seems to us, there's nothing that we should be unwilling to eliminate. Now, it's important to understand that in these two verses, uh, Jesus is using hyperbole, okay? So Jesus is not literally calling us to maim or to mutilate ourselves. And some have taken this verse to the extreme. Uh, so the early church theologian and church father Origen uh, actually went as far as to castrate himself. 
uh, because uh, this is the lunch crowd. I probably should have just reserved that for first service. So he went that far uh, in order, in his mind, to fulfill the, the requirement of, of this law. And you, you see countless others all the way uh, through the course of history, they've chosen a monastic lifestyle. They've said, I'm just going to isolate myself from the rest of the world. I'm just going to go into hiding away from people, and that's how I'm going to combat this. But, but this misses literally the heart of what Jesus was saying. The point Jesus was making was not to maim or to mutilate yourself. The point he was making was, listen, you could gouge out your eye, You could cut off your hand. You could isolate yourself from the rest of the world and that will do nothing to eradicate the sinful desires of your heart. We could go to all of these extremes, do all of these crazy things to alienate ourselves, but ultimately the desires of our heart can only be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet at the same time, just because this is something that can only be accomplished for us internally by the righteousness of Christ in no way, shape, or form negates our responsibility to do everything within our power to make sure we flee away from temptation. In no way, shape, or form. And that's what Jesus is calling us to. It's, it's extraordinary measures to make sure we don't stumble into these things. And this is what he calls. You know, oftentimes to avoid uh, sexual temptation, we, we might be required to take what others will, will think are extraordinary measures to avoid falling into sin. And I just wonder if Jesus was speaking these words today, what he might say. I think he might say something like this. If your smartphone causes you to sin, terminate the contract and get rid of the phone. I think he might say, if social media is causing you to sin, deactivate your account and delete the app. I think Jesus might say today, if Netflix causes you to sin, cancel your subscription and get rid of your TV. If you find yourself lusting after a neighbor or a coworker or a friend, making every effort to avoid compromising situations that you might place yourself in. Church, you have to burn the ships. You have to burn the ships for the sake of your soul. You you have to cut off every possible route to your destruction. Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, flee from sexual immorality. He doesn't say flirt with it. He says flee from it. Run away from it. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And how do we do this? Paul shows us, 1 Corinthians 6, we do it by fleeing from sexual immorality, not by flirting with it, we do it by fleeing from it. Our flesh is screaming, run to it, run to it, run to it. The word of God is screaming, run from it, run from it, run from it. It's it's telling us to do the opposite of what comes naturally to us in our flesh, but I think the reality is that, that so many of us have become so desensitized to the pervasive presence of graphic sexual sin that we no longer even see the problem. I mean, just, just as a culture, our, our minds have just been numbed to death by this. You know, we often talk about pornography as if this is a uniquely male issue, but, but we see statistically that it's not. You know, I read these, these statistics from the Barna Research Group uh, the last couple of weeks. They're just devastating, just, just staggering numbers. 55% of married men and 25% of married women say that they seek out porn at least once a month. 33% of women age 25 and under search for porn at least once a month. The average age of a child that is first exposed to porn is 11 years old. And by age 14, 94% of children will have been exposed. 50% of pastors have admitted to semi-regular porn use. These are, these are devastating numbers. These are devastating numbers. Pornography has been declared a public health crisis. 
But understand, church, we're not just in a public health crisis. This isn't just a cultural crisis. We, we need to recognize that we have fallen under the judgment of God. You know, people ask me frequently, like, do, do you think judgment is, is going to come in our nation? Do you think judgment will come on our nation? Church, judgment already has come in our nation. Read Romans chapter 1. Ju- judgment's already here. And, and the way that we know that, that we as a people have fallen under the judgment of God is that when a people over time again and again and again and again reject God in favor of the desires of their flesh, and specifically in Romans 1, sexual desires of their flesh, the way that you know a culture, the way a nation has fallen under the judgment of God is eventually he just gives them over to the desires of their hearts. And that's exactly what's happened. And our only hope here is that we would come to him and that he would grant us in his kindness repentance to turn towards back in. This is our only hope in this. The question is not, will we fall into judgment? The question is, how are we going to get out from under his judgment? Because we're a culture that has been given over to the sinful desires of our flesh. Jesus calls us to take extraordinary measures to eliminate temptation to sexual sin from our lives. Paul says it like this in Romans 13. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Make no provision for the flesh. That's the message from Paul. That's right in line with the words of Jesus. Make no provision for these things. And I want to pause here for just a second. I'm I'm going to share something that's that's personal to me. uh, Because I I fully recognize the cultural moment that we're living in right now. I recognize that it's easy to to sit there and think that I'm just kind of up here in an ivory tower using the word of God to to talk down on on all of us. And that I'm disconnected from the reality of these things. And so uh, if you're, you're new with this, this might be new for you. If you've been here for a while, this is not new for you because I've shared this transparently as as part of my own story and part of my own redemption and coming to faith in Christ. Um, When I was uh, late in my teens, early in college, uh, I was trapped in porn for a period of of a few years. And I I knew that this was so far outside of of what was right and what was good in the eyes of God. I knew that it was sin. Um, I'd covered it up and I was hiding it from family. I was hiding it from friends and and hiding it from the church and not being honest with anyone about these things. And and around my junior year of of college, whenever the Lord finally redeemed me and brought me back to himself, and and I I recognized the weight of my sin, the magnitude of what I was doing, I I made a commitment to the Lord, uh, not just to to walk away from porn use, but it was to to just draw a hard line and say, no, I'm not even going to watch movies that have any sort of nudity or sexual content in them. And, and by God's grace, like that, that's a standard that I've, I've maintained over the last 13, 14 years. But a couple of years ago, someone came to me and was like, hey, I want to tell you about this show that I think you'd really like, just kind of knowing where I'm from, my background and some of my interests. And, and so I did what I always do. What, what I think you should do probably is when you go to watch a show, you can go to the IMDb Parents Guide and you can see exactly the content that's there. And you can decide beforehand, man, do I even need to try to get into this? And, and so that's typically play number one. And so uh, th- there was a, a, a piece of the review that, that showed there, there was some sexual content. So my, my knee-jerk response was, well, no, because I've always drawn that line. But then I found out there's this app I could download for this particular show and watch it with a filter. And I was like, oh, so I can just download this app. I can watch the show and I can eliminate the stuff that I don't want to see. And in my mind, I, I had cut off the route. In, in my mind, I had, I had done away with it. I had still kept up the, the agreement, the, the covenant that I had made with the Lord, the commitment that I had made personally. But not long after that, as we were walking through uh, a Bible reading plans of church a couple years ago, I uh, read through Romans 13. And I, I'll never forget the morning that I read it. The, the, the words were just jumping off the page at me that day. Make no provision for the flesh. Make no provision for the flesh. Make no provision for the flesh. And here's what the Lord pricked my heart and convicted me of in that moment. 
in my mind, I had cut off my temptation to sin. But, but what the Lord showed me that day was I had not cut off the temptation. I had made a provision for my flesh. I hadn't cut off the temptation. I made a provision for my flesh. And so I just I had to come before the Lord just in confession of that and, and repentance and, and thanking him for using his word to, to draw me back to himself and show me the way that, that, I, was, that I was falling short. And, and listen, I, I know where some of you are at right now because I, I, I know some of our church upbringings and backgrounds and everything and, and some of you are thinking, man, that's, that's legalistic, that's Pharisaic, that's over the top. I just ask, what do you do with the words of Jesus about cutting out your eyes and cutting off your hands? Like if that sounds extreme, is, is cutting some TV content out of our lives. Like, what, what are you doing with the words of Jesus? What are you doing with, with, with Paul's admonition to make no provision for the flesh? But what do, you, what do you do with that? And this is, I think it's so important for us to hear because even among followers of Jesus, guys, I fear our minds have just been numbed by this stuff to the point that we no longer even see the problem. I mean, even if it's not explicit pornography use, how many of us just regularly stream content that's full of graphic sexual content? Like, like how many of us have, have invited this into our lives and, and allowed us to do these things? That there's so many ways we try to make these mental justifications about what it really is and what it's not. Like, I, this is a, a little bit of a dated reference here from the last several years, but man, this just blew my mind several years ago. Where I'm, I'm sitting here going like, how is a group of women going to watch Fifty Shades of Grey any different than a group of guys getting together to watch porn? Like, like we make all these little justifications. I, I do wonder, Christian, brother, sister in Christ, redeemed man, redeemed woman of God who was purchased by the blood of Jesus, I desperately want to know how you justify Game of Thrones. I really do. I really want to know what, what gymnastics you're playing up here to undo the word of God and the words of Jesus. And again, to some of us, like this, this just sounds so extreme. Like this just sounds so extreme, so over the top that we would take steps like this. And yet here are the words of our Savior, Jesus. If your right eye causes you to sin, cut it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. There should be nothing in your life, no matter how intimately involved you are, no matter how dependent you are upon it, there should be nothing in our lives that we're unwilling to cut out if it's leading us in to sexual sin. When you watch two completely naked people simulate sex acts on a screen, I just ask you to ask yourself, how does that bring glory to Jesus Christ? How is that sanctifying your soul? How is that guarding your heart? Brothers, sisters, how is that guarding and preserving and honoring your marriage? How? We, we look at so many of these things because our minds have been so numb to it, and we just say, I, I think it's harmless I don't think the question we need to be asking is, do we think it's harmless? I think the question we need to be asking is, does God think it's holy? Is this righteous and holy in the eyes of God? I mean, even if you're not willing to label the graphic sexual content you find on Netflix as, as pornography, I mean, at the bare minimum, it's exposing yourself to adultery as entertainment. How do we justify these things? You know, some have made the argument, it's like, well, well, you know, you can see these things on a screen because they're just actors and it's not real in the same way that there's, there's violence on a screen, you know. And, and I do think as a follower of Christ, there's even a case to be made against gratuitous violence in movies, different sermon for a different day. But, but John Piper has given some, some pretty sharp words, but I think very, very wise words on distinguishing. Like, what is the difference between someone who's, who, who dies on screen and the person who is undressed on screen? Here's his reflection. He says, nudity is not like murder and violence on the screen. That is make-believe. Nobody really gets killed. But nudity is not make-believe. These actresses are really naked in front of the camera, doing exactly what the director says to do with their legs and their hands and their breasts. And they are standing there and they are naked there in front of millions of people for the world to see. 
Pay attention to this. He says, what keeps Christians coming back is the fear that if they took Christ at his word and made holiness as serious as I am saying it is, they would have to stop seeing so many TV shows and so many movies. They would be viewed as freakish. And that today is the worst evil of all. To be seen as freakish is a much greater evil than to be made unholy. How many of us are unwilling to take Christ at his word? How many of us are unwilling to walk in the Jesus way simply because other people would think we're weird? That's exactly what Jesus calls us to. I fear what's happened in our culture, particularly here at Bible Belt South, I fear what's happened is that nominal Christianity has become so normal that we end up labeling normal Christianity as radical. Like, like we, we hear things like that today about, about cutting some of these things out of our life. Like that, that sounds radical. That, that sounds ridiculous. And yet, according to Jesus, like, like this is just following him 101. Like this isn't like advanced level Christianity. This is Sermon on the Mount. This is the Jesus way. This is what it means to be his people, to walk in the righteousness that he calls us to walk in. And yet for so many of us, like, like that, that seems like a different universe of living because of the way that we've allowed ourselves to be desensitized by the world. The direction from the word of God is abundantly clear. We flee from this. We run from this. We make no provision for this. So the question is not whether or not you and I think it's harmless. The question we need to be asking is whether or not God thinks it's holy. We can call it legalistic. You can write it off as Pharisaic. You can label it outdated. But the moment you find yourself justifying what God has called wicked, friend, you can be absolutely certain that you have fallen under his judgment. He has given you over to your desires. But here's the good news for us today. No matter how deeply we have fallen into these things, you've not fallen so deep that you are beyond the reaches of God's mercy and his grace in the gospel. That that is the good news of of what Jesus has done. That's what we've been singing over each other all morning long. We're gonna sing it again here in just a few moments because we learned from this passage that not only should we we do everything we can to eliminate it, we, we see, this is the good news of the gospel, that we can third, escape the consequence of sexual sin because of Christ. We can't escape this because of Christ. He has made it possible for us to be freed from these consequences. And church, we have to understand it does have consequences. We saw this last week about about the the unrepentant anger that we allow to fester in our hearts. Ultimately, it's deadly. Jesus says the exact same thing here about lust. Last week, we saw that Jesus was the first person in the New Testament to mention hell. This is three times in the span of only 10 verses that Jesus has mentioned the word. And, And we've got to feel the weight of this. I know it's not comfortable. We've got to feel the weight of this. It is how terrible hell must be that Jesus says it would be more comfortable for you to gouge out your own eyes or cut off your own hands than experience what awaits us there. Like how terrible must these things be? In the eyes of God, lustful hearts are just as guilty of, uh, of eternal punishment, worthy of eternal punishment as adulterous bodies. And even the lustful feelings of our heart left unchecked are enough to condemn us forever. I'm going to read these three passages right in a row from the Apostle Paul. The first is 1 Corinthians 6. He warns us. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He says that we practice these things. We're carrying out the desires of our heart in, in these things. 
that those who, who live this life, those who pursue this, those who give in to the desires of their flesh, that's evidence that they don't belong to Jesus and they will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then he shows a distinction. He says, but you were washed. This is what's different for us. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the spirit of our God. So that's why Paul writes in Colossians 3, put to death, therefore, put it to death, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. And you put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Again, Ephesians 5, 3-5, Paul says, But sexual immorality and impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Church, lustful hearts are just as guilty as adulterous hands, and Jesus is warning us. His word warns us. We just give ourselves over to our desires. We just give ourselves over to our desires. We're constantly acting on our desires. We have no guilt. We have no remorse, no repentance over the way that we fall because of our sinful desires. That is evidence that we do not belong to Jesus Christ and we will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul lays out that warning in Colossians 3. The wrath of God is coming for these things. But we can't minimize the significance of this. It's the pinnacle of human foolishness that we would trade eternal pleasure in the presence of Jesus Christ for overnight flings in cheap hotels in five to 10 minute bursts of pleasure in front of screens. It's the height of human folly. And the crushing reality is we've all fallen short of this. We've all fallen short of this. We've all missed the mark. Even if we've not committed adultery with our bodies, we've desired it or entertained it in our hearts. And, you know, there's a lot that's being written today, and I think for good reason in some ways. Lots that's being written today about the, what was known as the purity culture of the church in the 80s and the 90s. You know, the intentions of this, these movements were, were good, that the desire was to teach biblical understandings of, of sexual purity. But, but oftentimes where this movement aired, uh, where it had the wrong emphasis, was instead of emphasizing holiness and purity of your heart, the Holy Grail just became, hey, don't have sex until you get married. And, and that just kind of became the thing that everybody was supposed to chase. And man, heaven help you if you fell short of that standard. And, and gosh, I saw it happen to a lot of my friends, a lot of friends who have now walked away from the church because, you know, they stumbled into sexual sins, whether they, they slept with someone before they were married, got pregnant before they were married, or stumbled into porn, or, or you know, was a brother, sister in Christ who was struggling with same-sex attraction, even, you know, who, who, who believe what the Bible said about marriage, who believe what the Bible said about sex, but the moment they were honest about the desires they were feeling, they were ostracized from the church. And, and, and so the emphasis was just on this, it was on external purity. It wasn't so much about the righteousness of your heart as much as looking pure on, on the outside. And so, man, it was a movement. It, it, no matter what the intentions were, good or not, so much of the movement was steeped in guilt and shame and humiliation for those who fell. Just no hope for repentance, no hope for redemption. If you gave yourself away, it meant you were damaged goods forever. 
And, and so many who have walked away from the church, like these are some of their reasons for that because they were just heaped with the guilt and the shame and the condemnation of knowing that they made mistakes and yet finding no hope for redemption even among God's people. And, and so display, to display the hope of the gospel for sexual sinners, about 13 years ago, Matt Chandler is the pastor of the Village Church in Texas. He's the president of the Acts 29 network that we belong to. Matt Chandler gave what I believe to be the very best sermon illustration of all time. Like I saw no need to try to improve on this uh, as I was, I was pr- preparing for, for how to wrap this up. And, and so he, he gave on this particular subject, I think the very best sermon illustration I've ever heard in my life. And I don't say that lightly. And he tells a story of, of going to, to one of these big rallies, about a thousand high school college students and a speaker was coming to talk about sexual purity, the need to be sexually pure. And so the way he starts his talk is he walks out on stage and he takes this rose this beautiful, perfect rose, and he smells it, and he feels it, and he tosses it out in the crowd. He said, I want you to pass the, pass the rose around. It's about a 1,000 people in the room. He gets past. He said, I want you to, to touch it. I want you to feel it and, 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 and pull on it. And he said, I want you to really fully experience this rose. And then after talking for a little while, he calls out to the crowd. He says, Where, where's my rose? Where's, where's my rose? And somebody brings it to him. And so, of course, by that time, it's passed through thousands of hands. It's, it's beaten up, and it's, it's, it's beaten down. And he holds it, and this was like his point. His point, he holds it up and he says, see, if, if you, just, you just go around giving yourself away sexually, you, you're gonna be like this rose and, and nobody's gonna want that. It's like, well, why, why would you wanna be that? You don't wanna be like this beaten up rose, do you? No, nobody's gonna want that. And the way Matt Chandler tells the story is that he's, he's listening to this guy give what was probably the worst talk of all time on this subject. You know, Ch- Chandler's sitting there and he talks about the rage that was in his heart and how he just wanted to scream at this guy and say, Jesus wants the rose, Church, that is the message of the gospel. Our God does not demand that we be perfect to be able to come into his presence. If that was the requirement, none of us could come. He doesn't demand that we clean ourselves up, that we have our act together, that we've never made mistakes before in our lives. But like who among us has has not had lust in our heart? Jesus says we're just as guilty as the person who committed adultery. And that's the beauty of the gospel. And if, if I could just even j- just attempt to slight, don't tell Matt Chandler this because I don't want to get kicked out of the network. If I could just slightly, slightly attempt to, to barely improve this illustration, I would just take it one step further. Jesus doesn't just want the rose. He makes it new. He takes what is and he makes it new. He washes us clean of sin from the inside out at the heart level, that this is the good news of the gospel. This is the point of the gospel. He became sin so that you and I could become righteous. I mean, do you not feel as we've walked through these verses this morning, like just the crushing weight of failure in your life the last couple of weeks? Like last, last week after last Sunday, who had to go home and apologize to somebody? Like I had to apologize to my nine-year-old on the way home from church last week, okay? Anger in dad's heart. Like we, we, just, we, we feel that just the crushing weight of these things but even as we feel the weight of the burden of our sin, don't ever, ever forget the gospel. Don't ever, ever forget who Jesus is and what it is he came to do for you. Our Savior came to this earth looking for the rose that had been beaten up and passed around. He is, at this very moment as we're gathered, he is racing to find those who are crushed by the weight and the burden of their own sin and their mistakes. And this is, this is the true scandal of the gospel is it does not matter what you did with your body last century or last decade or last year or last month or last week or last night. The message of the gospel is a song of liberty for people in captivity. 
And Jesus comes to sing his song of mercy in the prison of your shame. No matter how far you have fallen, no matter how deeply you have fallen, no matter how many times you have fallen, hear hear me on this this morning. Your worth and your value are not determined by what you've done and how many times you've done it. Listen, I want to take this a step further and speak to somebody's heart today. Your worth and your value aren't determined by what someone did to you that's not your fault. That's not what determines your worth and your value. What your worth and value are determined by is the fact that the God of the universe gave his one and only begotten perfect son who shed his blood for you so that you could be washed clean of your sin. You are not defined by what you have done. You're not defined by what was done to you. You are defined only by what Jesus has done for you. And he's called you his son or his daughter. And according to his word, that's where we are today. He invites you today to step out of the darkness of guilt and shame, to step into the light of his holiness and his glory. So 13 years after the original illustration, the good news for us today is that Jesus still wants the rose. And he calls us today as he draws us to himself, purifies us from the inside out. He calls us today to burn the ships, to leave behind everything that might lead us away from the path of righteousness and holiness the righteousness that he's made us on the inside, the righteousness he calls us to pursue on the outside, all because of what he's accomplished for us. So Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for the hope that we find in your son Jesus that no matter the depth of our sin, the depth and the magnitude of our failure, we've never fallen outside the reaches of your grace and your kindness and your mercy. Father, I pray for the brother or sister who's in this room today who is just overwhelmed by guilt or shame of mistakes that they have made. God, I pray for the brother or sister who is just struggling with sexual sin in their lives. Lord, help them today to find rest in the healing hope of the gospel. Help them to know today, Father, that they can come to you, that you will not shame them, that you will not guilt them, that you will not condemn them, that if we come to you in repentance, in confession, your word promises If we confess our sins, you are faithful and you are just. You will forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You and you alone can make us pure and make us new. Father, we recognize that there's nothing that we can do from the outside in to purify our own hearts and souls. So we thank you for the gospel that purifies us from the inside out. Lord, help us to never minimize the the reality of the presence of sin in our lives. Father, help us to make every effort possible to avoid sexual temptation and sin in our lives. Lord, help us to rejoice in the fact that you have overcome sin and death and hell and the grave, that you, Jesus, became sin who knew no sin so that we could become righteous. We rejoice in these things today.